we're going to get right after it. And, and each week, kind of what I want to do is I want to recap where we've been. And the first thing I want to do to recap is, is I just want to uh, put some material in front of you. And so today I've been talking about this material, but today we actually have it for you uh, for uh, $15. If you don't have $15, you can just take it and we'll, uh, we'll tithe more. But uh, it's called Life's Healing Choices. It's basically what this whole thing on trauma is coming out of. And it's coming out of Celebrate Recovery, and that's kind of like the book for Celebrate Recovery. There's supplemental reading for Celebrate Recovery, but that is uh, the book, Life's Healing Choices. And so if you're following the book, you can see tightly kind of where I'm going. I'm, I'm taking some Bible stories, and then I'm applying it to this book and applying it to Scripture and supplemental Scripture that's found in this book. And so if you want that, uh, it can change your life just as a, as a way of relating I'm going through it myself right now, and uh, it's doing wonders for me. And so if that means anything to you, uh, go through it as well. But there's more things that have come from this time. And I've told you in weeks past that this has kind of been a year in the making. I felt like God wanted to, us to spend some time on this idea of what trauma looks like uh, with Jesus at the helm and some characters in the, in the Gospels that dealt with it specifically, and then how we walk through it in a place of victory. And so uh, there's some notes that I've taken to myself on my phone. I just text myself things or put things in my notes on my phone. And I've been saving them, kind of like one-liners just for you. And this is the third time I was going to go through this idea of trauma. And I chickened out the other two times. And then finally, the pastor just said, um, you know, man up and go through it. But uh, so here we are today. But the, here's something else that's come out of the sermon series. There's someone who has been through a lot in their life. And she loves Jesus with all of her heart. And uh, specifically... She's been through some traumas related to her past and her childhood, and she is starting a study or support group called In the Wildflowers um, that is specifically related to childhood sexual abuse. And so that's obviously a highly confidential, sensitive topic. And so uh, Beth is going to be leading this in just a few weeks, but, but here's what I need from you. Um, you can text right there, the information's on the screen, that you want to be in this group. Or um, you can register online, but we're not going to make this public. And so we're not going to have like a booth out front for obvious reasons. Um, but I, and, you, and you can't just show up to this. You have to pre-register. And then she's going to also have someone that's helping her lead the study. And, uh, and I'm, I just feel like God is going to do something. But it's come out of this idea of let's actually talk about stuff that's going on. And let's work through it and let's have victory through it. And so uh, Beth has so graciously agreed to lead that. And I would encourage you to be praying about how you can uh, maybe take those types of next steps. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn them to Luke chapter 7? We're going to get right after it. Uh, I want to recap these ideas, though. Uh, this whole sermon series is not just trying to tell you something. That would be a miss. And so as a pastor, I'm not just trying to give you information. I mean, the information comes in the process, but that's not the primary goal. We're not trying to just learn something. I'm not just trying to tell you something. I told you last week, we're trying to take you somewhere. That there's a destination that God wants to take in your life, and it's not just about you learning and retaining more information because even the demons know information specifically about the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same book for the last 2,000 years. And then this other thing is this, and I talked to my wife about this. We've actually been working on some of this stuff together. Uh, she reminded me to tell you this. And so when you see her at the second service, if you know her, you can, you can say thanks for this advice. Uh, she said in her own life 
These concepts are not something you embrace and then you move along. You keep going back to them. And so for that reason, uh, this is a sermon series that we want to have available in years to come. And so these steps, or whatever you call them, choices, these eight choices, uh, we're going to move through just some of them in church, but these are not something where it's like one and done, and you just learn uh, a piece of information, but you embrace it, and then you keep coming back to it over and over and over again. And that's how our faith looks, isn't it? You don't just hear it, and then you're good. You, you preach the gospel to yourself daily. And so as we move forward, keep that in mind. Last week, we talked about this, that we have to, if we are going to heal, we have to first start with this understanding that we have a need. And remember what I told you? I said, I realize that I'm not God. I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and that my life is what? Do you remember? Unmanageable. That there is someone who stands over me, and we're gonna get very specific with that today. In fact, there's an action step today, just so you know, that's gonna be radical for a bunch of Aberdonians uh, that don't all come out of charismatic backgrounds. But before we ever get there and take that action step today, we're going to compound on this, on this belief that our life is unmanageable. Before we ever get there, we have to first understand that we're not the ones that are in control. That when it comes to our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups, our past, that those things don't define us because we have the capacity as followers of Christ to surrender all of these things to him. And I'm going to show you specifically what that looks like when a woman who is truly the least of these takes that step in her own life. But what I've told you now for the last several weeks was when true in my own life, as I've been you know, bringing these things to the cross in my own life, is that our deepest desire is always to not repeat what has been done in our past, but more often than not, this is just the pragmatic side of me, more often than not, that's exactly what happens. Those things that we don't want to do end up defining us. Those people we don't want to be like oftentimes resemble us. And the easy answer to the reason why is we don't deal with our stuff. What I've told you now week after week that I wrote on my phone seven months ago is this. If you don't deal with your past, you remember your past will what? Deal with you. And so here we are. I want to show you what this looks like when a life actually changed changes, and there's this woman in the Bible, she's known as a sinful woman. In fact, most scholars believe she's a prostitute. 2,000 years ago, in a very religious, culturally conservative area, she would have been way on the outside looking in, specifically with the rulers of today, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. She would have been an absolute outcast, and she comes to Jesus in Luke 7 and she's broken. And most of us know her or know the narrative even if we don't consider ourselves Christians because at some point in our life we've heard about this lady because she does something radical in her brokenness. She takes incredibly expensive perfume and she pours it all out of Jesus' feet. Who's heard the story? You heard this story? Okay, let's walk in it together because I wanna show you how this woman connects to the idea that we're gonna walk in today. Verse 36, the Bible says this, Jesus or one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment 
and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, underline weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. This meal is a religious meal. I know that a lot of new lifers have a high status, so you'll understand the context. There's a lot of big shots at new life. But this is kind of a who's who. Jesus was invited in this scenario in Luke 7, and so Jesus hangs out with sinners. He hangs out with the least of these, but he also hangs out with the elites. It's kind of a mixed bag. He'll meet with anybody. And so in this moment, he's hanging out with the big boys, and he goes and he sits at the big boy table, even though he's not, that's not his heart, and so he's agitated by this type of crowd. This was a meal that wouldn't have been rushed. It had more to do with socializing and conversation and relaxing than actual food be, uh, being consumed. And then the Bible says this, and I, I think I just told you to underline it, but I'll tell you again, underline it. Behold, a sinful woman wants to meet Jesus at this meal. Highly inappropriate. In fact, you can even increase that statement and say, this would have been shocking. This would have been unheard of. And so the Bible says that, that she is a sinful woman and she goes to meet Jesus at this meal. And I want you to listen carefully and I want you to see from 2,000 years ago if you can he still hear some dialogue in this meal. I want you to see if you can actually hear the gasping that's taking place as she takes this step in her life where she lets go of all the social norms of the day and she decides to walk into this house. She decides to walk into this tension. She would have been extremely nervous. She would have been uninvited. She would have been unholy. And she was around holy men. And this woman sees Jesus' dirty feet and she takes this radical step to wash his feet with her hair, and with her tears, and with perfume that would have been about two years worth of salary, and she's broken, and she's humble. She has this understanding, although she doesn't know everything in the storyline, that Jesus is holy, and that she's a sinner. And so she comes to him from a place of brokenness in her life. And the Bible says this. This is the coolest part of the story for me. The Bible says that she gets down in an act of worship, she gets down on the ground and she's crying over her own condition. She's crying over the holiness of God manifest in her life through Jesus Christ. And she's pouring out all that she has. This alabaster flask is really just all that she has. She's holding nothing back from Christ. And then she does the unthinkable and she starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears with the ointment, and here's what's cool, you have to understand it culturally, she's washing Jesus' feet with her hair. In the Bible, if you look closely, you'll see this understanding of what a woman's hair is. It's different than a man's hair. A woman's hair is her beauty. A woman's hair is her glory. And remember, she has this past of not being so godly in her life, and so she uses her hair for all sorts of ungodly reasons to attract men, but now she's using it to wash the feet of Jesus Christ, and she has this authentic, falling down on her face, worship narrative in this storyline that has to be noticed. Verse 39, and now when the Pharisee, here's the flip side of the story, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said, if this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a what? Are you following me? She's a what? She's a what? Sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, and when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which one of them will him love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one who canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, so pause right here. I think, now I have no idea, obviously, no one does. I think it's possible that there's a great pause between verse 44 and verse 45, and so I'm gonna pause like I think might have happened in scripture. Then toward, verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? And I think that's the, maybe the possible pause. That's the awkward tension in the narrative that Jesus walks in. He says, do you see this woman? And I've always read it, and I was reading it this morning, I thought maybe it's a little different than the way I've always read it. I've always read it like, do you see this woman? And then he immediately takes the next statement. I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. What if, what if Jesus said to this religious, bigoted man who's misogynistic at his very core, what if he said to this man in verse 44, do you see this woman? And then he forced him through awkward tension for him to redirect his attention now to this woman who he's always judged since he's known her. And what if there's just this moment between this Pharisee and this woman who can't pick her head up out of shame and disgrace and she's just slinging snot? Have you ever been there? It's not just tears, it's ugly tears. You ever had a moment like that with Christ? What if in this snot-slinging moment, because I don't think that's conjectured, the Bible tells us that's where she's at, that this religious, prideful man has to own the fact that Jesus is in charge and that Jesus is doing things differently. He said, I entered your house, just insert the awkward pause. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He said, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, all customary things, but she has anointed my uh, feet with ointment. He says, do you see this woman? This, this, is a, this is a rich statement. In fact, in some ways, this is the point of the sermon series. We have to see this woman. And he closes it out. He says, therefore I tell you, verse 47, he says, our sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He never says to this woman, it's not a big deal. He never says to this woman, you know, times have changed. If you want to go, you know, give your body away to man after man after man, I'm not going to judge you. He never tries to, to build this rapport with her where he some way, in some way appeases the tragedy that's taking place in her life. And we need to hear that. But what he does do is he gives her dignity. 
What he does do is he redeems her. What he does do is he forgives her. What he does do is he transforms her. As she comes in, like we talked about last week, when you realize that God is in control, your reaction to that control is that you are humble in your response to him. And so she is beyond humble. She's absolutely broken, snot-slinging, can't get herself together, probably is pacing the floor before she comes into the house. Can you imagine what this woman is thinking as she knows that Jesus is in the house of the Pharisees and she's not welcome? I would imagine she's probably walking back and forth trying to convince herself that this is the right thing to do. And then she finally musters up the courage and she just falls at his feet. And he never makes excuses for her sins, but he does forgive her sins and he does change her while these pharisaical judgmental, religious guys have this pride in their heart that keeps them from being forgiven themselves. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So here's what I want you to see. I forgot to bring something. Chuck, would you help me out that, that yellow ball? I need to do an illustration here. Last week it was a communion cup. This week I'm just trying to catch stuff on stage. I'll get to this in a second. I want you to imagine that this is a massive beach volleyball. Um, I couldn't find one of those, and I decided to do this at 9.28 a.m., and so here we are. But it's pocket-sized, but you, you get the idea, right? How big is this? Huge, okay? Are you tracking? Here's the idea that I want us to, to see this morning as we give some recovery stuff to this. I want you to see this woman, and I want you to connect with her, and maybe that's natural because of your own past, or maybe that's tough for you because you're kind of a religious older brother in the the narrative of the prodigal son yourself, and so you look more like the Pharisee than the woman. But I want you to change your perspective if that's true because that's ungodly, and I want you to feel the weight of her past. I want you to feel the weight of her sin. I want you to feel the weight of her hurt the weight of her control or her need to be in control, the weight of her fear, and the weight of her hopelessness. And here's what I want you to see. I want you now to see this through a biblical lens, and I want you to see that weight as she goes to Christ at his feet with her perfume and her tears and her hair. I want you to see this because this is what needs to happen in our life for us to move past this place of trauma to this place of freedom like she experienced. Look at me. I want you to see it just being lifted off of her. Because that's where we're going today. There is a transition in this series. There's a transition from uh, being victimized to being set free. There's a transition that needs to happen from bondage to a place of surrender and freedom. And it happens as the weight, look at me, as the weight in your life is lifted. And if you don't walk through the process that I'm gonna talk about for the next few minutes, then you're gonna stay in the bondage that this woman had before she went and met Jesus. But try to get a mental picture of what this would have looked like. Last week, it's I realized that I'm not God, I realized that I'm powerless, I realized that my life is unmanageable, but it cannot stop there. Even people who don't serve the Lord have to, at some point, concede that that's true because life tells on them. If you think you're in control, just live a little longer, you'll realize that you are not. And so if we wanna work past our junk, if we wanna go from a place of trauma to a place of freedom, we start at this first choice 
in the book that we've been talking about, but that's just the first choice. That's just the first step. There are many more. Today, we are focusing on this idea, that I'm gonna realize that my life's unmanageable. I'm gonna own that, but here's what I'm gonna do this week. I'm gonna consciously choose, write it down. We might even have it on a screen for you. I'm gonna consciously choose to commit all of my life and my will to Christ's care and control. I'm gonna say it one more time. I am gonna walk in a place of freedom because I'm gonna take this next step that every born-again believer has to make. I'm gonna consciously choose to commit all of my life and my will to Christ's care and control, and then I am going to feel the weight because of that, because he's the one running the show, I'm gonna feel the weight of all of this oppression in my life lifted. Still gonna have hardships, still gonna struggle, but I am gonna feel that freedom because I'm gonna surrender. So here's my beach ball. Here's my beach ball analogy. It's in, it's in the book, but uh, they probably had a better ball. You ever remember, you probably, maybe, let's, let's go lake. It's more Midwestern. In fact, let's go swimming pool because all of us have been in one. Do you ever remember when you were a kid? If you did this when you are an adult, don't admit it because it's weird. But do, do you ever remember trying to float by like sitting on a, a beach ball? And do you remember what would inevitably happen, which is why it was so fun? That, that eventually, because, because your equilibrium's off and your balance isn't the best or whatever, right, or just because you're human, you, you would try to hold that thing down. In fact, don't even imagine that you're sitting on it. Imagine that this thing is about like this size, and I'll just try to reenact it as if it is, and I'll, I'll act like I'm struggling here, and there's water beneath me, or I can go to the baptismal to make it more real. But you're holding that thing underwater, and at first it's not that hard, are you tracking? At first, it's not that hard, but specifically if you're at the lake or maybe you didn't grow up around here, you're at the beach, and I, I remember trying to do this at the beach, so it is very difficult, uh, and you're holding that beach ball down, and eventually the waves come. Eventually, there's a current that throws you off track, or maybe it's a friend who comes and kicks you on the side or whatever it is, and you're so focused on holding that thing down that it becomes this centerpiece of, of your concentration but eventually, life happens, or waves come, and instead of being able to submerge and control and flex it out, now all of a sudden, that thing pops out of the water with just this massive fury. Are you tracking with this analogy? Does it make sense? I want you to get a picture of what that felt like when you were a kid or just an awkward adult that never grew up. And my point is this, that sometimes we try to submerge and control our problems only to experience greater pain. Healthy gospel change will not come until we let go of the beach ball. And we don't just let go of the beach ball, we give every piece of this beach ball to Christ. There is this process that has to take place where we are flexing it out, where we are white-knuckling it, where we are so focused on trying to suppress everything that's been going on in our lives as we've been saying my way and not yours, where we just release the ball and I'm not in water so I can't do this appropriately and it pops to the surface and we're cool with that because we realize we were never meant to keep that thing underwater and it's not ours to control. And it's in that process that we experience freedom. It's in the process of realizing that we can't bury stuff because it eventually, and it doesn't take long, does it? 
It takes longer in real life than it does in the water, but we come to this place where we realize that when we're bearing stuff, when we're suppressing stuff, when we're holding stuff down, it's only a matter of time because it come, before it comes crashing to the surface and we can only hold it together so long when the world around us is falling apart when we're trying to do it on our own. And so the choice three is this, consciously choose to commit all of my life and my will to God's care and control and surrender my life to his. If we don't take this step, we're stuck. You can come here, and I, I can prove it because I've been here a long time. You can come here week after week after week. You can get five Bible studies. You can serve. You can give. You can look great on the surface. But if you don't go where we're going right now, you're going to be the same person spiritually five years from now. You're going to be the same husband. You're going to be the same wife. You're going to seem to be the same dad. You're going to be the same mom. If, if you do not take this step to consciously choose to commit all of my life, and here's the gospel, there's no room for part. There's no room for halfsies. All of my life and all of my will to Christ's care and control, what he says goes, if you don't take that step, you will be stuck and you can only fake it, you can only white knuckle it for so long, but you're gonna be holding that beach ball down in the water and at a certain point, and it does not take too long, even if no one else sees it, that thing's gonna come to the surface and it's gonna fall apart. This is why the world around us gets shocked that the church doesn't look too different than the world because instead of surrendering, we're playing religious games with God, we're playing religious games with each other, and we're just submerging instead of surrendering. Consciously choosing to commit all of my life, not part of my life, to God's will and control. If we do not do that, we end in this place of despair, and that cycle has to be broken. Here's what the cycle of despair looks like. We have this. We're going to show it to you. I think it's like on a wheel because we've got fancy around here. I don't know if Kara did that or not. We'll see how she laid it out on the, on the screen. But it starts with guilt. All of us have felt guilty about something, right? You, you, you do things that you know are not a part of God's plan. You have this somewhat deep desire to, to get out of your mess. And you realize that you can't do it on your own and so you feel guilty. But you keep trying to do it on your own. Here's how the process plays out even further. Then that moves to a place of anger. Failed attempt after failed attempt. Look at how fancy she is. Make sure if you know Kara to tell her good job. And so it goes from this place of guilt. You can just insert your own story here. And it starts usually from a place of trauma where you, you learn stuff at a younger age that maybe should have never even happened to you, but you learned it, and now you're repeating that cycle instead of crucifying it, and so you feel guilty about it, and then you feel angry at yourself, or maybe you push that anger onto other things and you blame, but you feel angry because you're like, man, I've, I've tried this, and I've tried this, I'm holding this beach ball down, I just can't figure it out, and I'm getting frustrated, and then it moves to a place of fear. This is the cycle of despair in your life when you suppress this ball. And the fear is this, that I've tried to change like 50 times. And maybe I've got everyone fooled, but I know in my heart I'm just spinning my wheels. And so you have this rational fear that it'll never change. And the sad part is this is where it gets really dark. It goes from guilt to anger to fear to just a place of depression. 
And instead of living in a place of victory, you're living in a place of despair, and round and round and round and round it goes. And here's what I want us to own this morning. I'm going to say something so goofy that maybe you'll remember it because it sounds so stupid. What I want you to hear this morning is that nothing changes. Look at me. Nothing changes if nothing changes. Nothing changes if nothing changes. You, you, you cannot expect a different outcome if you don't submit the process to the Savior. Remember what I told you last week as we closed? If this was effective, the wheel's gone now. If you could do it on your own, if, if you didn't have to relinquish all of your lives to God's will and control, and your strategy of control was a proven strategy that was effective, if that was such an effective strategy, then what I told you last week is, why has it not worked already? Why are you 40, 50 years in the process and still spinning your wheels? There has to be another step. There can't just be a place of despair. There has to be, I, Jesus Christ, commit all of my life to you. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. And there are these things that hold us back in our sin, mainly because this is the root of all sin, is pride. And I think I can do it on my own, and then I'm going to have to keep falling on my face. That's why recovery models are always about rock bottom. I can do it on my own, or maybe it's guilt. I've tried it before, or maybe it's fear that if I don't make it, or I don't make it this time, then, then somehow, you know, I'm just going to continue to walk in this cycle of despair, or it's worry, or it's doubt, whatever it is. Uh, this is the way that it works for all of us. But what I want to tell you as we close, and here's the action step that we're going to take, is that the Christian life is a decision followed by a process. And the decision is to consciously choose to commit all of my life and my will to Christ's care and control. That nothing changes, hear me say it again and, and focus in. Nothing changes if nothing changes, I promise you. If you don't interrupt the process, if you don't humble yourself before the feet of Jesus like this woman who spilled her perfume all over his feet, if nothing changes, then I can promise you the same outcome is gonna happen. And so what does change look like? What does it look like to, to physically let go of this ball? The book talks about this closing story of, I believe, a grandfather or maybe like a great uncle who was in World War II. And this, and this relative would talk about strategies of conflict in World War II. And he said that there was a twofold process for change. There was a twofold process for victory in World War II. He said the first process was called softening up. And so before soldiers would ever arrive on an island, planes would come in and soften the land. They would soften the landscape. And basically what they would do is they would just bomb the heck out of it. They would create havoc on that land and that people that they were against. They would drop tons of bombs to get things ready for the invasion. And so that happens in our own life. When change needs to happen, a great place for change is pain, unfortunately. 
And so those bombs of life are, that are exploding around us, they're hurting us, but they're often softening us to this idea that, that something's not working. But, but here's the big one. I want you to see this. The second thing that Marines always did, and, and, and Chuck can tell you if this isn't true as like a 20-year Marine himself, is that they would always, I believe I said this to you this week, they would always establish a beachhead upon invasion. When they would go in, if they had any success, they would establish a beachhead. It didn't have to be a big beachhead, but it had to be something. It had to be this physical space that was occupied in order for them to invade effectively. Maybe it was only 100 yards by 50 yards, but once the Marines established a beachhead in World War II, they never lost an island. They were 100%. Once they had occupied physical space, they never lost a war. They, never, they always occupied the island. It was just a matter of time before the entire island was set free. And so what I'm asking you in closing is this in week three, to occupy this new space where you're saying, Christ, you can have the beachhead. That doesn't mean that now I have all the answers. That doesn't mean that I'm now a theologian. What that does mean is that you are surrendering to him, giving him everything and saying, I cannot do this anymore. I don't just realize that you're in control. I realize that I have to surrender because if nothing changes, then nothing changes. And the beauty of the gospel is he's never gonna let you go when you take that step. The beauty of the gospel is you don't have to fight alone. And once you establish that beachhead, you become Christ. You're marked with a seal. You're his child. And he's a protective parent. It's like now you're going through this life with all the same hurts, habits, and hang-ups, the trauma that you've been through. But now you have the savior of the universe on your side as you surrender your life to him and you take this physical step of saying, I'm going from here to this place where I'm consciously choosing to follow Christ with everything that I have. I'm gonna step across that line. And I don't have all the answers, but I know this, I'm establishing a beachhead right now and I'm gonna see some victory because of it. I'm establishing a beachhead, and I know that Christ isn't gonna let me go because he is a protective parent to his children. It's kind of like this idea of, you know, you have this protective parent that doesn't have all the answers for the kids, although Christ has all the answers for us, but what the protective parent does know is that if you have the protective parent's hand, anyone a parent in this room, and you cross the street with your child, you, you might not... You know, it doesn't mean that there's not gonna be a lot of traffic. It doesn't mean that there's not gonna be even a lot of confusion at times in your life, but you have Abba Father holding your hand and what a protective parent does is he never or she never lets the hand go across a busy street in chaos. And you don't have to hold the beach ball down and you don't have to try to control the script because now you have Christ and he is taking you from over here to this place of freedom. What does it look like to step across the line? Here's the action step. Fourfold, write it down. Number one, the whole premise of why new life exists, accept Christ as your savior. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit your need for saving. And make a conscious decision to surrender your life to Christ. 
And I know I'm getting repetitive, and I know I'm excited, but I want to tell you this one more time. If you don't take this step, nothing changes. You could play games for years. If you don't take this step, nothing changes. Number two, accept God's word as your standard. We preach this 4% thing around here, that 4% of Generation Z has a biblical worldview. If you want to see God move in your life, you accept Christ as Savior, but you believe his word is truth, that all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching. That when you look at this world and the truth that you're looking for and the hope that you're looking for, that you look to one place, the infallible word of God, and you say, Jesus, even if I disagree with you, here's where the rubber meets the road, even if I disagree with you, I have to concede my way's not working. Even when there's things that are culturally unpopular, when you say something like you're the only way to heaven or, or you know, just pick a, 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 a variety of issues, moral, that when you say something, even when it's unpopular, that I submit my life to you like the woman spilling the perfume at your feet and I concede that your word is not just something that can help me Your word is ultimate truth. Your word is the standard for my life, and I submit my will to yours, my word to your word. And number three, I accept God's will as my purpose, that you are driving the affections of my heart, and that what you want for me is better than what I want for myself. And lastly, I accept God's power as my strength. I accept God's power for my strength, Because if I could do it on my own, I would have already done it. Let's pray. Jesus, as people come forward and we have this time of prayer at the altar, Jesus, break our heart for what breaks yours. pray that this series would be a time of healing and a time of redemption, a time of transformation. And for everyone in this space who has never accepted you as their Savior and never surrendered their will to yours, never looked to your word as the ultimate truth, and never looked to your power as the ultimate power source, I pray that you would work on their heart right now and change them from the inside out. This would be a defining moment in their life where they took that next step. And I pray this in your precious and holy name. Everybody said, amen.